In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 14. In Joshua 14, we encounter the inspirational account of Caleb, a man of unwavering faith, who at the age of 85, fueled by his resolute determination and trust in God's promises, boldly requests the mountainous region of Hebron as his inheritance. Caleb was among the 12 spies who initially scouted the land of Canaan, and his faith remained unshaken despite the daunting challenges and giants that they had encountered. Among other things, this account serves as a lesson for us about perseverance in pursuit of God's promises. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Wednesday, October 5th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, our text for today is a pivotal chapter. We look at how, uh, after many years have passed, Caleb's spirit has not grown weak. This mighty 85-year-old warrior is ready to go off and battle giants and conquer the hill country set aside for him. His bold request is inspirational. He doesn't fret about his age or his circumstances. He simply believes in God's promise and he acts. Well, that's what we're going to explore today. My guest to help us open up Joshua 14 is the Reverend Ryan Climola. He's the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Toledo, Ohio. Good morning, Pastor Climola, and welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Good morning, Pastor Boo. How are you? Well, I'm doing great, and I'm I'm happy to have you on the show. Um, This is an interesting text. We're just starting to get into the part of Joshua where... It's less about these mighty and and fantastically and sometimes entertainingly uh, poignant battles, but now it's going to be a list and lists and lists and lists of places and names. Uh, But these lists are really important. And the author to Joshua is easing us in because we're going to first learn a little bit about this Caleb guy, one of the spies and how he's going to get his land. But no, I'm, I'm doing great. Just happy to get into the text. I hope you are, too. Uh, would you lead us in prayer yeah, before we dive in? Absolutely. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We we pray that it would illuminate um, our sin so that we might know once again our, our need for our Savior and even more so illumine that which our Savior has done to give us life. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to follow you with our whole heart. Help us to, to be um men and women like Caleb who who trust and obey in your word and, and call upon you to receive the promises that you um, have laid out before us. Bless us as we study Joshua chapter 14 today, and may your spirit guide us in our in our discerning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, yesterday was kind of a hinge chapter as we move into the second part of Joshua. Um, Anything you want to talk about, about what we've covered so far, so that people might be more prepared to hear what we have to talk about today? No, you kind of covered a little bit of it. You know, the first half of Joshua's book pretty much divided uh, 12 chapters at the beginning, 12 chapters at the end was all about the uh, getting into the promised land, you know, the crossing of the, the Jordan, and then the, the uh, course of Battle of Jericho, and, um, you know, that very glad I didn't get to have the opportunity to have uh, chapter 13 because it's kind of 
kind of dry. And as, as you said, the, the rest of the chapters following, it's kind of a, a listing of, of land allotments. And here in chapter 14, we get a little bit of a oasis as we zero in yeah. on, on Caleb and learn a little bit about him. Yeah, at least we get a little bit of narrative from uh, from Caleb. But, you know, as I go through these, and, and I'm completely with you, it's just, it seems like, it's almost like the begats or chronicles. It's like, oh, this is just a very long list. But you know, I've already recorded a couple of our future episodes, the ones that won't be live, and the guests have really done a good job of helping, you know, illuminate just how we can learn more about God's will for us, even through these lists. But you're right, it takes some work. I, I tell you what, we're going to look at 14 today. I'm just going to read the first five verses. So here we go. All right. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. These are the inheritance that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan which Eleazar the priest, and Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as Yahweh had commanded by the hand of Moses for nine and one-half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one-half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as Yahweh commanded Moses, they allotted the land. Well, stopping right there, brother, if anything, that's almost just a summary of chapter 13 also, you know, just saying, hey, we, we dished out the land just as God told us to do through Moses. Yeah, and it, and it brings up, you know, the, the nine and a half and the two and one half, which uh, are explained a little bit more in, in chapter 13. But, yeah, it's, it's basically just uh, catching you up before you get to the, um, the, um, the allotting that, that starts to take place in the verses that follow. Absolutely. And one of the things that we talked about yesterday that this also uh, reminds us of is about the land uh, or, or the lack of land, I should say, being apportioned to the Levites. The Levites have cities that they're essentially being lent to dwell in, and they're scattered amongst the people of Israel so that everybody's pretty close to a sanctuary city, and the Levites are living amongst the people they're serving. And one of the things that uh, my esteemed guest and I talked about yesterday was how it's a lot like, uh, kind of like a parsonage. You know, you you have a pastor who doesn't really get equity in the land where he's living, but he's there and he's near the people and he's serving them. Uh, I don't think that's too much of a stretch, but I just thought that was a neat way to look at it. Yeah, I, I've never really considered it uh, that way. Um, I, I did listen to the episode yesterday, um, and uh, that that was a, a, a interesting way to think about it. And it's it's kind of a good way to think about everything we have in this world. It, it all belongs to God, and we're we're granted to be stewards of the the different things He gives us, even our relationships. But yeah, it's a good way to look at it. No, you're absolutely right. That is a very good point because, you know, while it's easy to connect perhaps Levites to pastors, really everything we have has been given to us by God. And just as we see the people of Israel, the the chosen tribes, uh, and starting with Caleb, them kind of calling in the promises of God, right? They're resting on the promises of God. But but the the bigger picture is they're trusting in those promises and they have an inheritance that is coming. And for every Christian today, you are Israel, and you have been promised an inheritance. And your inheritance, of course, comes through Jesus. 
but you don't have it yet. Caleb doesn't have his yet. Most of the people of Israel don't have theirs yet. There's still plenty of people left to be conquered. And, and so these inheritance very much reflect the life of the Christian today because we're all looking forward to the eternal inheritance in heaven. Yeah, and I'm glad you're talking about that and especially emphasizing the word inheritance there because I think that's one you, you just kind of gloss over. But if you stop to pause and consider what an inheritance is and how you get an inheritance, you, you get it because of your parents. You, you don't get it because of anything you've done. You don't get it because of anything you've um, you, you don't earn it. It's it's not deserved. It's something it's a gift and su such a great way to view what we get from God is it's his gift to us. It's because of who he makes us to be as part of his family. Indeed. And so Caleb gives us a, an example of just unwavering faith. I mean, he's waited 40 some years, I think, for this inheritance. So we have this patience, but we also have a determination to receive what God has promised him. Why don't we go ahead and get into the text then of Caleb, because that is going to be the focus. It's a short chapter today. We only have 14, 15 verses in total, uh, but I'll start just a little bit here with verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephnuah the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what Yahweh said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of Yahweh, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed Yahweh my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely, surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed Yahweh my God. And now behold, Yahweh has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that Yahweh spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me, and my strength is now my strength is as my strength was then for war and for going and for coming. So now give me this hill country of which Yahweh spoke to me on that day, for you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that Yahweh will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as Yahweh said. So that actually ends with verse 12. We have a few more left to go, but we have a lot of program left to go. Just hopping back up to the beginning. Yeah, so here we have. Caleb, and I'm looking forward to hearing again about just who he is and how he rates this special consideration. But you got to love a guy who's like, I'm 85 years old. I'm just as strong as I always was. Now give me my mountain. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, and of course, his, this is actually a faithful yeah. action. Yeah, go ahead, brother. Yeah, quite a bold statement. And like you said, it is a faithful action because as the text unfolds, we, we realize it's something that God had promised him. But uh, just real quick and aside, this this text, this chapter really jumped out at me because, number one, my, my firstborn son, his name is Caleb. And um, and just last month, I turned 40 years old. So two things in this chapter really struck me as um, interesting intersections with my life. But um, maybe before we get into Caleb, um, there's there's certainly a lot we could say about who he is and what he did um, as recorded in Numbers 13 and 14 with the, the spies. But um, perhaps uh, just to make that connection with Joshua real quick and, and something that 
um, kind of shows up in the, the chapters ahead of Joshua that I th thought was really interesting is that uh, Caleb is here first in line to get his allotment, his land portion, and, and he asks for it while everybody else gets it uh, by lot. And then the, the very last person to receive their uh, portion of land is Joshua. So Caleb and Joshua, these buddies from the, the 12 spies, they, they're, they're the bookends for, for the rest of the allotment, which I think is kind of a, a lot you could do homiletic or devotionally with that, you know, just to think about the, the faithful are first and last, you know, the, the faith in God is, is something that kind of encompasses the people of God. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we also see, you talked about the difference between the way Caleb is sort of claiming land that was already promised to him specifically, but everybody else was casting lots. Uh, I do believe we talked about this a couple times, and we will continue to talk about it, but the whole concept of casting lots will also be important, I think, for us to go over for folks to help them understand that. Um, but yeah, I think you're, you're, what you're pointing out is, you know, I think something we could easily miss if we, uh, if we just glossed over it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, it's not until chapter 19 that Joshua receives his, but but they are uh, the first and the last. And I think that's a notable um, notable truth that, that takes place as recorded for us in Scripture here. Well, take us into it then, uh, looking at this, you know, the, just sort of the overarching concept. So we know that he's going to come up and he's going to start quoting Moses. But even before we do that, you know, the main reason, the main way, we look at verse 2, the very you know, second verse, their inheritance was by lot, just as Yahweh had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. So I, I suppose take us back to what the casting lots might have looked like um, from your perspective. You know, we have some differences of opinions um, and, and what that might have just looked like on the ground as they were trying to figure out which land is whose. Yeah, the, there's actually um, nothing in Scripture that specifically describes it for us, but um, there's a, 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 a Jewish document called the Talmud that um, gives some insight, and whether it's, you know, it's not inspired, so how, how truthful it is or how accurate it is, we, we leave to uh, arguments, I guess. But um, so they, they said that there was, um, suppose that there was two jars, if you will, and in each jar were um, different tokens. One jar had tokens for each of the tribes, and the other jar had tokens for each of the land allotments. And um, so Eleazar, um, purportedly, according to the Talmud, was wearing the Umin and the Thumin, I think I'm saying that right, the, that mysterious breastplate um, that somehow invoked uh, the, the, the work of God, the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And so wearing this, he would draw one from one jar, one from the other jar, and that would be how it was done. So whether it was done that way or, you know, whether there's a 12-sided dice, who, who knows, but it was, a, it was a random thing that um, ultimately what, what that does for us, other than just give us a head-scratcher of how did they do it, uh, but, but really the why behind it is it's taking it out of the hands of the people. So this isn't a favoritism situation. This isn't... Um, hey, you scratched my back, I'll scratch yours, I'll give you the, the fertile valley, you know, that kind of situation. But this is really up to God. And and I think this kind of builds on, or we can see it building on the inheritance idea. When A lot of times we, we toss around the phrase, the will of God. But if you're thinking of inheritances and that word will, this God knew according to his will where these uh, tribes would be. 
Yeah, that's fascinating thought in general. Just, you know, and we often struggle with this as Christians, at least uh, growing up, I know that I did. And that is the difference between the omniscience of God, the fact that he knows all things, and his will, that is, he wants certain things to happen, and of course, his providence or direction, that is, how many things does he want to happen and waits to see how it will unfold, even though he already knows, and how much of it is God directing our lives, but we don't want to become fatalistic. Same thing with these lots. God is involved as they draw the lots um, so that his will is accomplished and that human preferences and things like that will be excluded the best they can. Uh, but at the same time, um, this is just the way in which God is, once again, condescending to come to us, to use means that we can understand. It would have been a lot easier, I would say, for God to just say, here's a list of what everybody's getting. I am the Lord. So I guess why the lots if God is also known for just sort of telling Moses, or maybe even he could have just told Joshua where to uh, put the things. Do you have any thoughts on that at all? No, that, that is an interesting question. I hadn't given that much thought, but I, I'm just uh, imagining that, you know, the perhaps this is, you know, maybe not as on par, but similar to the testing that God did of Abraham when he told him to sacrifice his son Isaac. He, he, um, he didn't just come down to Abraham and say, hey, I'm God, and, and um, I want you to do my things. Um, he, he gave them this opportunity to prove his faithfulness, and I, and I think that's one of the big themes of, of Joshua is, is seeing the faithfulness of God's people and, and, and God's faithfulness to his people. And so here he's giving them an opportunity to, to do this by a means that's outside of their hands and um, also uh, in their hands because they have to take these steps, which, um, as you mentioned, they're, they're not necessary. He could have just, you know, I, I often say, you know, God didn't have to send pastors. He could have just used a, a sky rider or some celestial um, orbiting satellite constellation to, to demonstrate the truth of Christ for all humanity. But no, he gives us uh, men to, to bring those gifts to God's people and location. So why God does what he does is not always the best question to ask, but I think this <laughs> demonstrates that God is looking for, for something from his people. No, you're absolutely right. You know, it's very bold to ask, you know, well, God, you haven't revealed to us why you do or don't do certain things, but, you know, but still, I think it's okay to speculate a little bit, but you hit oh, on sure. something. Yeah. yeah, you hit on something, though, that I think helps answer it tremendously, and that is, you know, God knows the results of the of the polls. He knows the results of the lots and the allotments, uh, but at the same time, it maybe it's more about how we experience it, or in this case, how they experienced it. For instance, God commands us to pray, and there's so much ink spilled and thought experiments on, you know, how does prayer affect the one who never changes and who knows all things? Um, and certainly we can cite places where God's mind is changed, at least on paper, <laughs> but really it seems like things like prayer are to benefit us, that it reminds us who is in charge. It, it causes us to send our eyes upward so that we realize that God's in control. And the same thing here, if God had just given a list, that would be one thing, but for the people to participate in God's will, then they, they walk away knowing, you know, this was certainly by the Lord. You know, this wasn't a list concocted by Joshua that we're going to later find out wasn't true, but this is genuinely God allowing us to have some small part 
so that we can at least feel <laughs> and remember that, uh, that uh, you know, we rely on him. Very much like baptism. You know, we believe that God gives us faith through baptism. He bestows faith. He, you know, gives us his grace. But why go through the bother of water and baptism? Well, God has his reasons. And I think part of it is our weaknesses, our need to have something that we can tangibly be a part of. No, I, I think that's beautiful. And uh, you're uh, hinting towards a sacramental connection that I hadn't perceived in the casting of lots. But I but I think that's uh, one of the ways God expresses his love for us, or at least his understanding of our our humanity is is that tangible realities of um, you know feeling the water of baptism, recalling the, the baptism you've been given uh, when you can um, approach the font and make the sign of the cross with the water, or you know when you go to the Lord's table and you have His body and blood and the bread and the wine. Those are those are real tangible things that almost feels like we have skin in the game, but yet understanding right. He's the one who's in control. Absolutely. Well, as we look at this then, you know, what would you like to focus on next? I, I do want to hear a little bit about uh, Caleb and who he was and what that was going what what was going on back in numbers. But is there anything else, especially about these first five verses that you think maybe uh, people should know? I know we've already read further, but anything else before we get into just who Caleb is? Well, I, I will mention quickly, I, I made a list of the, the tribes and I, I've counted and recounted and I've just keep feeling like I'm coming up short, you know, the two and one half and the nine and one half. And the fact that Manasseh's on both sides is something I couldn't get to the bottom of, but it's just a, um, it's kind of just a head scratcher, but um, understanding why the, the, the Lord did that was uh, kind of a big takeaway for me, you know, that they had asked for that uh, place um, and, and they 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 were perceived, you know, you, you, uh, Gad and Reuben, along with the half-tribe of Manasseh, they were granted uh, land on the east side of the Jordan. Um, but, but uh, you know, the concern was that they were too afraid to go into the land, but yet then they become the, the leading in the battle, and then they go back and settle that. That was an interesting thing that came out of this. And then also oh. the... Um, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to piggyback on what you're saying and, and gr agree wholeheartedly. You know, we have these nine tribes, and that's the nine remaining tribes of Israel that are still left to receive their portions of land west of the Jordan River. This half-tribe of Manasseh and Reuben and Gad, you know, 9, 10, 11, and then, of course, you know, half Manasseh, 12. But they, uh, yeah. they um, yeah, I've always kind of gotten the impression that they wanted their inheritance sort of early on the East Bank. We read about that in Numbers 32. Um, and then the Western half is basically what we're looking at now as we see that division. But it, yeah, it seemed like there was either a fear of going in or maybe even a little impatience in want and waiting to receive their inheritance, which is in striking contrast to today where we have Caleb who has literally waited 45 years. I mean, at 85, especially during this time, uh, even though he says he's just as strong as he ever has been and he's in the peak of health, you know, we don't know how much of that is hyperbole, but still he's ready to go and conquer it, but he has also been incredibly patient. So that really stands in contrast to these, you know, the two and a half on the other side. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and one last note, maybe in these opening verses, is um, you know the uh, the two half tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, 
Um, this is uh, it, another way to say it is that Joseph receives a double portion in the allotment of the land, which was I was looking back in Genesis to see if that was part of Joseph's blessings. It wasn't, but it actually shows up in Ezekiel 47, verse 13, where, uh, you know, that strange book uh, rehashes this allotment of the land. And it says there that Joseph receives a double portion. Um, and so I just thought that was an interesting thing, you know, talking about birthrights and blessings. It's almost like Joseph gets the blessing while Judah has the birthright. But, um, you know, just kind of little footnotes as you go along. It's hard to hold all this in your head, but it's it's neat to notice these nuggets as you go. It is hard to hold it in your head, and especially since really this whole narrative goes on for chapter after chapter after chapter. I don't exactly remember when it ends, but I think it's like 18 or something like that. So we have a lot of chapters of these, I guess, allotments dishing out of the land. And uh, yeah, I really, and a lot of guests have suggested this, and I recommend this too, uh, grab, grab a good biblical map for the next uh, week or so on this program. You're going to be consulting it a lot. Uh, the good biblical map, maybe it's in your Bible, maybe you have to look one up online, but a lot of the places and the people um, are going to become, uh, well, uh, really clear as you start to get your mind around it. You're going to really see that all this is taking place in the same places where Jesus walked. And so this mm -hmm. all still connects to us today. Um, we have a couple minutes before the break. Uh, anything else before uh, we move on? No, I, I think uh, maybe maybe a good note to, to kind of summarize these first five verses is that um, this gives us a picture that, you know, God's got a place for everybody in the promised land. All of his uh, people have their place in the promised land, and, and that's a direct uh, thing we can take to heart because everyone has a place with God in Christ Jesus. And, and I think that's that's one of the things that's in the background of, of whenever you talk about the promised land, what is our promised land? Of course, it's the, the new creation that we look forward to. And the Lord is preparing that place for us, has prepared that place for us in Christ on the cross. And so um, we know God's faithful to his promises. And so he promises us the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And, and so we, we look forward to that. Indeed. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we go ahead and take our break just a minute early, and that way we can consider what we've talked about so far and prepare when we come back to hear about Caleb, the spies, who he is, and what he's asking for. Don't go anywhere. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Ryan Klimola. He's the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Toledo, Ohio. 
Folks, I love hearing from you. It's such an encouragement when you write in to share with me how Thy Strong Word is a part of your devotional life. If you have any questions or comments about today's show or you just want to say hello, you can direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Send me a message there. Thanks so much for listening and telling others about Thy Strong Word. Well, back to our text. Uh, you know, we just we read earlier that the people of Judah now come to Joshua at Gilgal. They're starting to, you know, want these allotments. Um, and then we get the story of Caleb, the son of Jephnua, the Kenizzite, who then says to him, and he quotes, and I actually like this, uh, Pastor Klaimola, because he says, You know what Yahweh said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I I think that's funny. It's like using Moses' first and last name as if they don't know who Moses is. (laughs) So there's got to be some reason why he's so formal in his approach, what Yahweh said to Moses, the man of God, right? You guys know Moses, the man of God. I think they would know who Moses is without that. But is this just part of him you know, kind of formally recalling how important this promise was. Why do you think he's being so formal? Yeah, I actually haven't, uh, didn't consider, you know, I, I like the way you said that, his first and last name. You know, Moses, man of God. He's he's certainly known to everybody there, but but I, I don't know. Do you have any ideas why he might have? Uh, oh, no, I just thought of it. I, it's like, uh, yeah. yeah, Moses is kind of like Cher, right? Everybody knows who he is. You know, so to say, to say Moses, the man of God, and of course, where it happened, and of course, he's reminding Joshua that it concerns both him and, um, and of course, uh, Caleb. I, yeah, I don't know. I just thought it's just sort of interesting because maybe this is a part of the fact that he's coming up not saying, hey, Josh, we're good buddies. Why don't you give me my some good land? He's very formally and probably in the presence of not just Joshua, but the elders and other people who could hear. And so it just seems like he's being very formal about calling upon not only the name of Yahweh, but the name of Moses, who is only important because of God and, of course, where it happened. But, yeah, so he says he was 40 years old when all that happened, and he gets into the spying out of the land. I think it'd be a good time to remind people what that was all about. Yeah, definitely. He um, so this is probably uh, most uh, uh, Sunday school attendees at least first introduction to spycraft and <laughs> that uh, <laughs> the uh, what what spying is and it's it's funny. I was just thinking during the break that it's one of my favorite uh, nonfiction genres to read is or I'm sorry, fiction genres to read is is spy novels. And so um, I think it was probably in Sunday school when I first heard what a spy was. And so yeah, they. This was right after the Exodus, you know, right after Moses part of the Red Sea and the Israelites uh, got set free from their Egyptian captivity and slavery. And so they're in the wilderness and they're, they're two years in the wilderness at the point when they get to where we're now at in Joshua again. And Moses uh, sends 12 men off uh, to, to spy out the land, to observe and report back of what's going on there. And, uh, Caleb and, and Joshua are the only ones of the 12 who say, we got this. And everyone else is like, oh, they're, they're tall. Uh, they're, uh, what was it, grape clusters are huge. You know, we're like grasshoppers compared to them. It's just all fearful language. Um, it even says in Numbers 13 and 14, you know, the, the hearts of the people melted um, because of that, which is language we get in this chapter as well. Yeah, so they're the only ones who are really coming back saying, oh, yeah, we could take them. Here, here's a positive. Everybody else was just so afraid. 
Uh, and and this is right. why they were set apart. This is why they were told. In fact, I think that's the moment at which they were told specifically that land that you were just on, you know, you're going to get some of that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's the aftermath of that, you know, it's, it's, you know, kind of um, chagrinning to just to think about, you know, after those two years in the wilderness, they could have been in headed into the promised land had they followed the, the words of Caleb and Joseph and, and their hearts and in this matter, but their, their fear of, of man, uh, you know, it really led them to what God said uh, to them. He said, you know, that this generation is going to pass away. And, and Caleb and Joshua were the only ones who, who made it into the promised land from that group. Mm, that's true. I did, actually, I didn't think about that myself. Um, yeah. So, you know, we have that. Well, we even have that, of course, um, in numbers. Yahweh said, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. So, yeah, there's this connection here. So if uh, if Caleb is 85, then we imagine that Joshua, who I think is just described as being advanced in years, I'm not sure we get that he, but probably around the same age. Um, yeah, that's what, what I, like I concluded a, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and I and I like this. You got a couple of, you know, older gentlemen. Uh, you know, eighty five's pretty up there even for us uh, today. But I think back then it would have been especially so. Um, and but he's basically saying, look, especially verse ten. Now behold, Yahweh has kept me alive, just as he said. And and that is what he said. We just heard that from Numbers twenty six. But but um. These 45 years, he says, he has been kept alive. Um, and while now I'm 85, I love this verse 11, I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me because my strength now is just as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So he's not even asking. He's not even asking that, you know, I want this lamb, but would you guys go and clear it out for me? He's saying you know, let me go. Give me a sword. Give me, give me an axe. I'm going to go in and grab my land real quick before the Lord takes me. He doesn't exactly say that, but that's kind of what you hear. He says, yeah, I'm 85, but don't delay because of my age. Joshua, you know what he said. Let me go and get it. That's just amazing. Yeah. I, I think it really gives us an insight, not only into his faith, but his, I guess his zealousness. You know, at 85, he's still eager and able to fight for his inheritance. And we too, as we grow older, I think we sometimes think, well, our time of serving the Lord with strength is is behind us. But that's not true. You know, more seasoned believers who are close to their 80s, man, they have wisdom and experience that they can contribute to Christ's kingdom, which uh, makes up for any lack of physical strength. But But so often, how is the church even today just kind of catering to the youngins when there's so much faith and wisdom locked up sometimes in our older believers. Yeah, for sure. This is, this is a great, Caleb's a great uh, biblical character because he's, he's one of the few that we, we get to know a little better than just a name, you know, slightly more than just his name. We know uh, not as much as we'd like to know, but in, in what we know about Caleb, we, we don't see any shortcomings, you know, when so many of the, heroes of the Bible, we, we know their flaws as well as their, their faithfulness. And, and Caleb is just kind of a faithful character. And, and yeah, this, um, 
basically I haven't aged in 45 years, whether that was a miraculous thing or, or whether this is like Psalm 103 verse five, where uh, your youth is renewed like the Eagles, whatever it is, he's got a zeal and a passion that I think we would all love to have at that stage of our life. Do you have an opinion on whether he's being just hyperbolic? Like I'm just ready to go. I'm, I'm young. Send me in coach. Or has he been preserved in strength? Do you, I, I know that it's unclear, but do you have an opinion? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll point to someone smarter than myself. So uh, Adolf Harstead wrote the Concordia commentary on Joshua, and he points out the, that the, or the Hebrew in there is actually um, indicates that it's an identical strength because of the, the construction. So his, his postulation is that it's, it's not just like or not maybe even hyperbole, but this is my strength. And we can kind of even see it in the English. My strength now is as my strength was. And so strong, strong. It's, you know, the repeated word with the connection, connections um, or the conjunctions that connect it. It really makes it clear that this is a equal thing. But, you know, what, whatever the case is, his, his zeal, his faithfulness, his trust in the Lord certainly permeates, um, permeates that. It's not even, even with that strength, he's not trusting in that strength. He's, he's trusting in the Lord clearly in his, his statements here. Oh, precisely. Yeah, we wouldn't want to confuse that. Even if his strength has been preserved, it's been preserved miraculously by God. So, of course, the credit goes yeah. all to God. But he's such an example, though, to especially our seasoned believers who say, you know, I, I've, those who are tempted to say, I've done my duty, I'm time to just sort of let the young people take over. Well, I'm going to go ahead and be bold and encourage you out there. Don't do that. That's a bad idea. <laughs> we need your wisdom. We need your experience. We need your strength to help guide us, um, both our young people and our middle-aged people like myself. So, yeah, we uh, no, we, I, we love I, our I, older I, folks. Yeah, and I, I think this is a great passage for our church to consider in our age because, I mean, I, I think congregations everywhere are realizing the age shift, you know, and I've heard it time and again from the members here at our congregation, well, why don't we let the younger people serve? We we served when we were younger, right. and the reality is, the reality is, our demographic shift is we're we're not seeing as many young people, but the Lord is continuing to be faithful, and He can still use those who who have years. It, it made me this passage kind of made me think about you know the the idea of retirement. A lot of times people you talk about the idealistic retirement where you just go and you've worked, and so you just go and you you relax and are just entertained, and and I I think the the coolest elder people I know are the ones who, who they just don't stop serving. They, they just keep going and they, they continue to see that they can be of benefit to the world around them. And I think that's a godly perspective for us to have as we age. I recall that back when you and I were in seminary, one of the, I think it's a professor or somebody retired, and I'm sorry I don't remember who, but I do remember what they said. They got up there and they had said, and maybe this is an old joke, but they said that, you know, being from Detroit, getting retired means something completely different. It means having your old tires removed and your new tires put on and you got more work to do in the LCMS. That's especially true for our retired pastors for whom I am eternally grateful for their service to the church. But boy, that just applies to all of us. You know, we always talk and, and we rightly do talk about how we don't want children to feel like they graduate out of church by being uh, confirmed or going through the rite of confirmation. It's not a graduation. 
Well, I would say to all of our future St. Caleb's out there that, you know, just because you get older, you don't retire out of being a Christian. You don't retire out of serving your neighbor or praying to your Lord. And, And we need, of course, you more than ever. And there is a lot of themes to leadership in here, too. Not just Caleb's age, but the fact that uh, Joshua here is is demonstrating his leadership uh, as uh, you know as the, the the successor to Moses, and then of course uh, he's getting up in his age too, and there's going to be a big shift of leadership to other people, not as just because he's getting older, but because he's about to depart the earth. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely there. I, I'm, I'm going to push us to the end of uh, verse 11 because um, he talked about how his strength was strength was now as is now as it was then, uh, and and it's a strength for war and for going and coming. And one of the things that there's um, kind of disparate or uh, two two different takes on that going and coming. Um, one is that it's battle terminology. You know, the the army goes out and they come back. Um, But then also there's a number of parallels where that terminology is used in the Psalms, such as uh, Psalm 121, verse 8, which we use in the baptismal liturgy, where we talk about the Lord bless your going forth and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And and I I think it's a beautiful thing. And I I would take it if you pin me down to say that, um, you know, I'm strong for war, but I'm also strong for uh, taking out the trash. I'm strong for, you know, the daily drudgery that that we have to do and get to do in this world. We are in complete agreement there. I believe that he's both saying, yes, I can go out and fight, and I can also you know, do whatever else needs to be done in our daily passage of life. Uh, I, I'm reminded of Deuteronomy 31, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 2, is talking about, Mo- actually, it's Moses himself talking. Just 31.1 says, Moses continued to speak these words to Israel, and he said to them, quote, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. And then, of course, he's talking about his death. So this coming out and coming in, I'm with you, brother. I think this means, you know, he's like, listen, I can take care of my house stuff at the same time as I can go out and and take care of these giants, whatever is waiting for me. I'll take care of them. Um, and I think that's important, too, because, you know, he's he's just pointing to the fact that he is able to serve, able to go out and do these things. And you talk about verse 11 where he mentions that. Well, even the way, and I know it's in English, but even in the way it's translated next, he says, so now give me this mountain, this hill country, Hebron's, the city, Hebron, of which Yahweh spoke on that day. Because, you know, you you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. And I love this because as faithful as he is to God's promises, he still doesn't put words in God's mouth. He says, it might be or may be that Yahweh will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as Yahweh said. That's not a lack of faith. It's just an acknowledgement that God is sovereign. So he says, God's promised me this land. He's promised that he'll drive out the people. And uh, But, you know, he's still God, so I hope he does that. <laughs> I mean, it, it's kind of a, a balance there. Yeah, and it, and it does kind of indicate something we've already been talking about. That that phrase itself, you know, uh, aside from that phrase, and and um, Caleb saying that he was strong for war, you, you you might see that strong for war and be like, well, what do you have to do? They already cleared the land, but but he's he's got this. Um, there's this indication there, and it kind of shows up later in in the book as well that there was work to be done. There was some um, some. Uh, 
conquering that took place afterwards. Oh, yes. And let's not forget that just conquering the area, even running out the original inhabitants, doesn't keep you at peace forever. You have to defend the land that you now got. So as we see, as we go out throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there are plenty of other sea-dwelling nations and people who weren't there originally who now go up and try to try to attack the Israelites. In fact, that becomes a giant part of most of the Old Testament. But yeah, so that he has to not only sort of keep cleaning it out, because there's still going to be stragglers, but really defend it. But it's not just for him, it's for him and his children. So, you know, Moses lived to 120. Does that mean 85 is actually pretty young? Eh, probably not. He's still referring to himself as, a, as an older gentleman, a more seasoned person. So he's also thinking about his family. And I think that speaks to us too. Now we have, well, what is his role? Well, we have Caleb. He's been faithful. He's been patient. He trusts in the Lord. He calls upon and rests upon the promises of God. But he also not only is going to go out and fight for what God has given him, but he's doing it for his children. He's passing this down to his children. And that's another important aspect of our older believers today. You know, we need you to help us pass down that information to future generations. Right. Yeah, yeah. And you, you kind of... Uh... We've kind of been hinting at, you know, the prayer-like uh, approach that Caleb has here where he's asking something of God. And uh interesting thing I, I came across or just notable is that there's five instances in the, the distribution of the land where people ask for something that isn't granted by lot. And, and this is the first of those occurrences. And, and in that, it's, it's a good reminder that it's good to ask God for things, you know ask, seek, knock. And, and you know, we should, um, you have because you do not ask. And we're, we're supposed to ask, especially when it's on the basis of what God has promised to us. And those are the best prayers to pray is, is Lord, you've said, so Lord, I would like, you know, that's the Lord delights to hear those things. What an important point. You're right. I mean, how often do we serve someone, let's say that are facing a, a major medical issue, or maybe their loved ones are facing something and 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 they know that they have to pray and should pray, thy will be done. But then it goes so far as they think that they're not allowed to ask for miracles or healing or anything else. They're like, well, I'm only allowed to want what God wants. Well, yes, we do want to be conformed to God's will. But as you just so rightly said, he's our father. You know, ask him. If, of course, he says no, then we can trust that he'll help us understand his decision. But he wants us to ask him, of course, as Luther would say, as dear, dear children ask their dear father. Yeah, and, and I, I don't want to give away too much of chapter 15 and take it from whoever's following me tomorrow, but um, of the five instances where somebody asks for something you know, specific in the allotment of the land, there's only one occurrence where it's not asking something that's been promised, and that's actually Caleb's daughter as she asks for some springs, she gets married and she asks for some springs. And um, she actually, uh, interestingly enough, marries Othniel, who becomes the first judge. But but the Lord grants that to her. And so it's, I, th I think that's a great reminder to us, you know, that, yes, we're to ask what the Lord has promised us. But, yes, we can even ask more than we can begin to think or imagine that, that the Lord is capable of. And, and he loves to hear those prayers, even if he doesn't answer them according to our will. He is our, our gracious Father, loves to give us the good things that we need. 
Oh, indeed. Yet another thing to take away from this, which seems to be just a, an account of, well, how this Caleb guy is asking for his inheritance. But boy, doesn't it point forward to even more than that? I want to go ahead and finish up our text just to add these last couple verses to our conversation, uh, verses 13 through 15. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron or Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. So, of course, that's what great comfort there is for Caleb in that uh, last verse, the land had rest from war. I think that's uh, more of a longer focus than an immediate focus. But, yeah, the, they God is going to provide for Caleb and his people in that land. That's how I interpret that. Um, anything else from this section, though, that maybe adds to what we've been talking about? Yeah, I, there, there's a great um Thing that happens, I, I think, with uh, the word melting, I, I, I meant to count how many times it shows up in here. You know, it talked about um, the the hearts the hearts of the people melt. My brothers, uh, in verse eight, it says, "My brothers went up with me, made the heart of the people melt." Um, you know, those were the ten spies who said all these scary things that were happening. And and by the way, we we keep saying the word Anakim, but when you hear that word, you can think giants because that's the common association with with them. But um, with the, the word melt in, in Exodus 15, verse 15, this is uh, the song of Moses when they cross the Red Sea. He says, uh, uh, now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. And so thinking about the word melt there, this is this is what uh, Moses is prophesying. This is what Moses is singing as as they've had this victory from uh, by the Lord's hand, and and this is you know just two years shy of of them crossing into or spying out the promised land. So it, it could have gone this way had had the people been faithful to the Lord, but instead their their hearts melted when God was wanting to melt the hearts of others. And and so I, I think this is just a um, a powerful picture of. Of what's going on, and, and and the reason I say all that it ties to these verses is that last line, and the land had rest from war. Um, you know, it took seven years of conquest for them to do this, and that's something we kind of glossed over when we talked about the 85 years old of of Caleb. It gives us a timeline for the um, not just the wilderness wanderings, but how long after the wilderness wanderings um, that that conquest took place. But they have this. Um, they have this rest here because, and, and it's because the Lord had caused their hearts to melt, and, and certainly He He worked through His people to make that happen through their through their conquesting. But um, it, it was the Lord's work for them to bring them to the inheritance that they couldn't earn, even even though um, they they like to think that way, and we as humans love to think that way. It was the Lord's guiding and providing. Oh, indeed. And, you know, this land had rest from war. It's not the first, nor is it the only time we're going to hear that. We heard it back in verse 23 of chapter 11 um, in a similar context. You know, Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. So in a more generic sense, they're all going to experience this rest from war. But I think it connects to God's own word that says, you know, in the future, now we're talking about our future, 
but they shall not even learn war anymore. You know, we think of, I think that's Isaiah, right? You know, the plowshares and being turned in from swords. So we have this future vision of being given rest from conflict and war and not just battles that are army battles against other nations, but the the warfare that comes from from struggling with our own sin and facing our opponents in this world and, and Satan and even death. And so I guess what I'm trying to say here as we get closer to the end of the show is that all of this inheritance points forward to the greater inheritance that we receive from Jesus, the greater inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no war, hunger, famine. And, and so this is just like everything else, a foretaste of that great, you know, feast, that great inheritance to come. Um, because when we look at this, do these same people still possess these lands today? Now that's worth its own, you know, uh, not just show, but I don't know. It, it would be so complicated to talk about the history of who's possessed the land and all the conflicts around it. But, but I think that misses the point that there is this future and even better promised land waiting for all those who have trust in Jesus. And I think we all look forward to that, having rest from war. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> well, as we come to the close of our show then, just anything else you'd like to make sure people know from any of this text, anything maybe we've glossed over that you just would hate to leave before you tell the folks about it? No, I can do kind of want just uh, to recap a little bit, you know, Caleb, this is the most uh, dense picture of Caleb that we have um, in scripture. And so we learn more about him here with his, his aged life. And, and, and just to point out, you know, he's, he's 85 years old and the, that generation had passed away. So not only is he old, but he's, he and Joshua are the only old guys there, which is a notable thing. Um, but even in his age, he's, uh, he's willing to serve. He's courageous. He's humble. And he's faithfully obedient to God, trusting God will fulfill his promises when others allowed um, fear to, to get in the way of their faith. And it's, it's just a great example for us as, as we go through this world. And there's so many things that we could melt in the face of or, um, or, or run the other direction from. But God calls us to follow him in all situations and, and to wait, uh, trusting in his promises, even seeking fulfillment of his promises. Um, and when he's ready, he, he will. And, and when he's ready for us to, to act, as um, Caleb indicates here, we, we should be ready to do what he gives us to do. Well said, and a great word to end the program on. So, folks, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Ryan Klimola. He's the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Toledo, Ohio. Ohio. Uh, thanks, Pastor Klimola. I look forward to having you on the show again. Absolutely. Good to be with you. Thanks. Folks, uh, tomorrow when we get back together, the chapter that will unfold before us is all about the allotment of the promised land for the tribe of Judah. We'll traverse the diverse territories, bring a map assigned to this text, um, but these territories that are really about the most important of Israelite tribes really show us a historical context that's going to later play a pivotal role in the life and ministry of Jesus. And beyond the geographical boundaries, Joshua 15 carries a timeless message about heritage and unity and faith. I hope you'll join us for that and a lot more. That's tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. 